such a joy to be with you this morning. I, guys, I just first want to say that it is such a privilege to serve with you all. When we met Wednesday night and we were talking about some possible directions that the church may be going in, and it seemed like the overwhelming consensus was whatever God may be doing, we're there. We're desirous of following whatever the Lord may be doing. I just want you to know that I served the Lord and drew closer to Him because of you later on this week. So I want to thank you for contributing to me being able to draw closer to the Lord. It was because of you, and thank you so much. In 1961, prison warden Kenyon Scudder told the story of a young convict who had recently been released from prison. One of the warden's friends happened to be sitting in a railroad coach next to the ex-convict who was obviously depressed as he headed toward home and he tells the following story. Finally, the young man revealed that he was a paroled convict returning from a distant prison. His imprisonment had brought shame to his family and they had neither visited him nor written often. He hoped, however, that this was only because they were too poor to travel and possibly too uneducated to write. He hoped, despite the evidence, that they had forgiven him. To make it easy for them, however, he had written to ask them if they would put up a signal for him when the train passed their little farm on the outskirts of town. If his family had forgiven him, they were to put a white ribbon in the big apple tree which stood near the train tracks. If they didn't want him to return, they were to do nothing and he would remain on the train as it traveled onward. As the train neared his hometown, the suspense became so great that he couldn't bear to look outside of his window and he exclaimed, in just five minutes, the engineer will sound the whistle indicating our approach to the long bend which opens into the valley that I know as home. Will you watch for the apple tree at the side of the track? The new friend said that he would. They exchanged places. The minutes seemed like hours. But then there came the shrill sound of the train whistle. The young man asked, Can you see the tree? Is there a white ribbon? Then came the reply. I see the tree, but I see not one white ribbon. I see many white ribbons. <clears throat> there is a white ribbon on every branch. And the tree was decorated with a white bed sheet, a white dress, a little boy's white trousers, and white pillowcases. Sun, the man stated, Someone surely does love you. When, when God makes an offer to someone, He offers of Himself, therefore He offers in abundance. Now I know that that statement has the ability to be, to sound like a prosperity gospel type statement. But that's why I can't let it alone to stand on its own for very long. So let me go back and revisit it. 
When God offers grace to someone who is suffering from sin, when God offers grace to someone who is suffering from the effects of sin, God offers grace in abundance. He offers grace in abundance so that the need is consumed and the need is overtaken by grace's capability. Listen, don't get me wrong. One one white ribbon would have been very nice. It would have suggested that there is hope to possibly start anew. But listen, beloved, a multitude of ribbons suggests something much deeper. It suggests that hope has already been accomplished. And I have the guarantee of a new life long before I even step off of the train. Today, Christ simply reminds us that the grace that He offers to us is grace in abundance. So that we do not stumble or limp through the Christian life, but so that we reign in life through the person of Jesus Christ. Please open your Bibles to Matthew 22 as we try to explore this idea a bit more. Matthew chapter 22. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14. The parable of the wedding feast. Matthew 22, 1 through 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. So an invitation has been extended already. An invitation has been issued, and now the king is sending servants to say, okay, you've already received the first invitation, now come, it's time. So this is really the second invitation in a sense. They would not come. Verse 4. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. The invitation's not enough. Let me give you the details of what is spread out on the table and what is waiting for you. Verse 5, but they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned the city. Seemingly, the, the, the indication is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD when Rome came in and they burned the temple down. Verse 8. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Who were those? Those were the Jews. They were not ready. So therefore, go. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. Praise God, beloved. That's us. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here? without a wedding garment, and he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, 
and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, desirous of what it is that you have prepared for us, God. Lord, I pray that as we come together as a body this morning, that God, you would give us eyes to see more details of what that means. Allow us to see the greater joy. Allow us to see the beauty, the sufficiency. God, those things that we can easily tend to overlook as we just try to survive and make it day by day. Give us eyes to see your beauty. Give us eyes to see all that you, Lord Jesus, have done for us. For our good, for your greater glory, for the benefit and the unity of the gospel. For those around us who may not know you, allow us to see everything or as much as we possibly can in our humanity, what you have done for us. And that's our prayer this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I do want to try to pull two principles from this. We'll probably not get beyond the first one today. Today we're going to look at the complete sufficiency of the gospel. The complete sufficiency of the gospel. Probably next week we'll look at the seriousness of the gospel. But under the complete sufficiency of the gospel, we want to look at the sufficiency of the gospel as all we need for our redemption and all we need to reign. Those two principles. So let's look at the sufficiency of the gospel. Let's reread verse 4, guys. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. As we set in on this lesson that Christ teaches, we can find ourselves trying to put together the pieces of this parable puzzle so that it will make sense to us. But for those who were currently present and personally present as Jesus taught this, they immediately and quickly identified with the offense of not responding to the wedding feast invitation because of the rudeness that it projected. In Jesus' day, a wedding was a most important occasion, as it should be. And because it was such an important occasion, it was most celebrated. The festivities usually started on a Wednesday, and the party went strong for seven days. Homes were freely opened to a multitude of guests. It was a joyful and a celebrative time for the whole community. The joy of the wedding was such a, was such a joy to everyone involved that it symbolized and even brought a bit of ease to those people's minds who were constantly bombarded with the reality of Roman oppression. Even the wedding feast itself was a bright spot, bright spot in a very cruel world. But Jesus talks about a wedding feast that's quite different than that of an invitation from a commoner. He talks about an invitation from a king for the purpose of honoring his son because his son has chosen for himself a bride. You see, an invitation from a poor farmer in Judea whose son is getting married, that invitation is that farmer's way of saying, listen, this is one of the greatest events that we're going to experience. I want you to experience this with me. I want you here. 
To turn that farmer down would be to wound him emotionally. Whereas an invitation from a king in Judea, whether it be a tyrant like Herod or a more gentler king, it's not so much a matter of I want you here as much as it is a matter of I expect you here. And to turn that invitation down is not to wound emotionally as much as it is to respond to him disrespectfully. But Jesus' true intent of the parable runs much deeper than even that. Listen, beloved, when God the Father calls men to come, when God the Father calls men to gather, when God the Father calls men to come and to be properly dressed, when God the Father calls men to come and be sufficiently fed by the feast of grace that only exists at the table of the gospel, when God calls men to be taken aback by the glory of His Son who has chosen for Himself a bride known as the church, His invitation to the wedding feast highlights both His wants and His expectations. And to turn away God's invitation to be clothed in righteousness, to turn down God's invitation to be fed by the feast of grace that exists only at the table of the gospel, it's no longer a matter of rudeness, beloved. It is now a matter of great rebellion. And it's important to note at this point that this is not the marriage of the Lamb that takes place in Revelation 19. It's important to note that this is not a reference of that time when Christ will present to Himself the true church at His second coming. This feast that we're talking about today, it will result in that union. It is a prelude to that union, but beloved, it is not yet. That is why as Jesus offers this explanation, the idea of marriage quickly fades away into the backdrop and the emphasis is on the feast itself. Christ does that intentionally to highlight to us the abundant benefits that exist for us and they are contained specifically and solely in the gospel. And the first benefit in the complete sufficiency of the gospel is that we have all we need for our redemption. All that we need. Look, men are being called. Common men. The text even tells us that both bad and good are being called to this feast, but it's very important to note that the bad and the good that are being called is a moral bad and a moral good, not a good that consists of righteousness because the reality is all are bad. Some are just not as bad as others. And this is Jesus' way of assuring us that good and bad in this instance is measured in the realm of humanity. It's His way of assuring us that every ear needs to hear the gospel clearly articulated to them whether that person is morally bad or whether the person is morally good. The gospel is for everyone because the reality is regardless of how good a moral good is, it is never good enough to be reconciled to God. And it is never enough to enable that individual to stand in the presence of God of a mighty and a holy God. Listen, beloved, if anything, morality is the greatest pitfall and the most damning factor in relation to all of humanity. Because what we tend to do is we begin to, based upon our own estimations, we begin to determine what's good. 
And then when we determine that this is good and we realize that we don't fall into the category or we fall into the category of good, then we begin to think that we're okay because we're not bad. And we determine ourselves to be good enough to be accepted. And let me tell you the reason that I know that unredeemed man does that. Because, man, that's the same temptation that I am confronted with as a redeemed man. I am always, I'm so sinful that I am always continually confronted with the temptation to measure my actions against other people and determine for some odd and ungodly reason that I'm good and they're bad. I'm driving to work Saturday and I'm complaining to God about sin. Not my sin, sins of other people. I'm complaining to God about the sins of other people. Not mine, but at least I care about sin, right? At least my complaining to God is in the context of sin. I'm complaining to God about sin. I'm complaining to God about the sins of other people and how the sins of other people have affected me and how the sins of other people have brought harm my way. And I'm asking God to swiftly bring justice and deal with the sins of other people. And I'm measuring the actions of other people and I'm placing them in the category of being bad. And I'm realizing that because my actions are not their actions, I'm not bad, I'm good. And then God has his own way of saying, listen, take that big, thick log out of your own eye. Do what you need to do and pray for the people that you're complaining about. And God is so faithful in that area because the reality is it's not an issue of my brother being bad and me being good. It's a matter of us all being condemned because of our unrighteousness and falling into that category alone. Now listen, if there is any truth, beloved, that we must premeditate and determine that we will repeat over and over and over And over, in order to seek to honor the person of Jesus Christ, it has to be the truth that we are not good. It has to be the truth that a moral good on its own stands in complete rebellion against God. A moral good on its own means absolutely nothing in relation to being reconciled to the person of Jesus Christ. Paul said it this way in Romans 3, 9 through 12. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Let's stop there. That's catastrophic. That's fatal. That is damning. Because that means that our relationship with God is ruined. There's no hope in it. Verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. We're continuing on in Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Listen, no one does good. Not even one. No one. Now, we have to be very careful when we're speaking and teaching about the idea of goodness. Because it's in us, rightly so, to teach our children about the need to be good. We should be doing that, of course. 
we can find ourselves even saying things like, you know what, God isn't very happy with you right now because of the way you just acted. But now, we have to be careful here. Because if we want to serve our children very well, as well as the rest of humanity, we need to be throwing up that constant reminder that in the context of Scripture, good has its limitations. Not only does good or the idea of being good have its limitations in relation to being reconciled to God, it has no place at all. And outside of Christ's provision of righteousness, a moral good is just as rebellious as a moral bad. Man has absolutely nothing to bring to the table of redemption. That is why God Himself necessarily provides the garments of salvation that are cleansed by the blood of Christ so that we may stand in the presence of God accepted, blameless, loved, justified. That's where this feast has its beginnings. It's the glorification and honoring of the person of Jesus Christ. And listen, as we stand today in the appropriate wedding garments that have been given to us through the Father, through the person of Jesus Christ, we are simply reminded that Christ chose to first be our Savior so that He would necessarily be our bridegroom. We are simply reminded that Christ, He who is chief among 10,000 and altogether lovely, made a pact with God Himself that Christ would identify with our humanity only to redeem us from our humanity. We stand here today clothed in the righteousness of Christ because Christ chose to be the recipient of our treason in order to be the ultimate object of our treasure. Today, we are simply reminded that Christ has chosen to show His compassion to redeem us above His power to immediately and justly judge us for our many refusals to show up to this feast of grace that is only presented at the table of the gospel. And the result of Christ's and the Father's great sacrifice is that He has clothed us in the robes of righteousness that are heavily stained with the blood of His Son so that we may stand as redeemed men and women in the presence of a holy God. And listen, beloved, we had absolutely nothing to do with that. Absolutely nothing. And to think otherwise is almost on the verge of being blasphemous towards the purity of the gospel that highlights the finished work that Christ has done. Remember, this is a feast in honor of the glory of the person of Christ who on His own provided for us garments of righteousness, who has laid out a, a great feast of grace. It is in honor of Him and Him alone. Author Brennan Manning states the following. Because salvation is by grace through faith, I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palms in their hands, I shall see the prostitute from the Kit Kat Ranch in Carson City, Nevada, who tearfully told me that she could find no other employment to support a 10-year-old son. I shall see the woman who had an abortion 
and is haunted by guilt and remorse, but did the best she could faced with grueling alternatives. I shall see the businessman besieged with debt who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions. The insecure clergyman addicted to be liked who never challenged his people from the pulpit and longed for unconditional love. I shall see the sexually abused teen molested by his father and now selling his body on the street who as he falls asleep each night after his last trick whispers the name of the unknown God he learned about in Sunday school. But how, we ask. Then that's when the voice says, they have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There they are. There we are. The multitude who so wanted to be faithful, who at times got defeated, soiled by life, and bested by trials, wearing the bloodied garments of life's tribulation. But through it all, clung to faith. That is the gospel of grace. And let me add, beloved, not only is it only the gospel of grace, and I know that, that says it all, that is the complete sufficiency of the gospel of grace. There's no place for comparisons as we come to this feast of grace that exists only at the table of the gospel. We, can, we can't. Yes, we can go about the process of measuring ourselves against the prostitute or the, or the teen that turns tricks, but if we come out all the better, it's only because of our own estimations. It's only because we've determined on our own good and separated it from bad. And the reality is, as we see so vividly in this text, we're all in need of the same wedding garments. And every wedding garment needs to be stained with the same blood of Christ because rebellion against God runs as deep, I want to assure you, rebellion against God runs as deep in one as it does in another. It just manifests itself in different forms. Yeah, yeah. maybe grace did have to reach down a little bit deeper into the pit of immorality to save some. But I can tell you what, the person that was down the deepest, they're only better for it. Because they have a deeper understanding of the complete sufficiency of the gospel. And the reality is the prostitute is probably a better worshiper of God than I because of that. Jerry Bridges states, before we can learn the sufficiency of God's grace, we must learn the insufficiency of ourselves. The more we see our sinfulness, the more we appreciate grace in its basic meaning of God's undeserved favor. In a similar manner, the more we see our frailty, weakness, and dependence, the more we appreciate God's grace in its dimension of His divine assistance. Just as grace shines more brilliantly against the dark background of our sin, so it also shines more brilliantly against the backdrop of our human weakness. Listen, beloved, if we are here this morning and there is anything in us that causes us to think of ourselves as good, we are only tinkers of grace. 
And like C.S. Lewis said, we're like the ignorant child that wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. If we are just tinkering with grace, beloved, we are too far easily pleased. And not only does the sufficiency of the gospel give us all that we need for our redemption, in the sufficiency of the gospel, we also have all we need in order to reign. Verse 2. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. The kingdom of heaven is not just a future hope, although it is that. The kingdom of heaven, when Christ talks about it, it is also a current reality. To be in the kingdom of heaven for us, beloved, means that we are experiencing the reign of God in our hearts right now at this very moment as we live this thing called the Christian life. The Apostle Paul said the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. The kingdom of God is a matter of power. And he also stated it this way in Romans 5, 7. Since by the one man's trespass, Death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Reigning in life, guys, I believe that it has a twofold implication, and I believe that the Apostle Paul is referring to both. It has that implication of reigning in eternal life with the person of Christ but I believe that it also carries the implication of reigning in righteousness right now. You see, the garments that were given to us, that's our justification. That allows us to stand confidently in the presence of, a, of the mighty and holy King. This feast of grace that is now being offered only at the table of the gospel, that, beloved, is our sanctification. Because the wedding feast is designed for all of those, all of us, who have been introduced to, affected by, crippled by that sin nature that Adam passed down to us. But the good news, all lusts, all evils, all corrupt thought patterns, all self-consumption, it finds its end as our master right here at the feast of grace that takes place only at the table of the gospel. Listen, Christ's good does not balance out Adam's bad. Christ's good consumes and overtakes Adam's bad. And we have everything that we need so that sin is no longer our master. John Piper stated, Grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to be bound to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. Therefore, the effort we make to obey God is not an effort done in our own strength, but the strength which God supplies. So let's revisit that a moment. The pardon that John Piper is speaking of, that's the garment that enables us to stand in the presence of God. The strength that we need to overcome sin, that's the, that's the provision that God has made at the Feast of Grace when we only sit at the table of the Gospel. We hear the Apostle Paul plead with the Lord three times that God would deliver him from his thorn in the flesh, only to hear God respond and say, my grace is sufficient for you. We sing along with Chris Tomlin 
as he sings, your grace is enough. But it's so important that we do not dilute that idea in any way. It's important that we don't have a stoic mindset that may suggest that receiving grace is like taking an aspirin. It's enough to take that edge off of my massive headache and enable me to just make it through the day. That's not the grace that Christ offers. Jesus said that His grace is sufficient. And that word sufficient, it means to be possessed of unfailing strength. To be satisfied and desiring of no more than what we already have. Peter said it this way in 2 Peter 1.3. Everything, and this is from the message translation. <clears throat> everything that goes into a life of pleasing God has been miraculously given to us by getting to know personally and intimately the one who invited us to God. The best invitation we have ever received. We were also given absolutely terrific promises to pass on to you. Your tickets to participation in the life of God after you turned your back on a world corrupted by lust. The invitation is the offering of the wedding garment. The promises that we have that are being passed on to us, they exist at this feast of grace that we can have only when we sit at the table of the gospel. What you need. If your need is pardon of sin, it's there for you. If your need is the assurance of pardons of sin, that's only going to be found at this feast of grace. If your need is to know that you have favor with God, that need is available for you. If your need is to be delivered from sin, or to be delivered from habitual sins. Or to be delivered from fear. You need to know that there's a place that you can go and God will sufficiently meet that need. What's your need? Do you need the promise of the Holy Spirit enabling you? It is available for you only at the Feast of Grace that exists only at the table of the Gospel. Do you need to know that the ability exists for you to be more conformed to the image of Christ today than you were yesterday? Then know that that possibility and assurance exists for you at the Feast of Grace that is only available at the table of the Gospel. Do you want to know that you have the ability to live as a man who is dead to sin and alive to Christ? As a woman who is dead to sin and alive to Christ? That's available for you. But it's only available at the Feast of Grace that exists at the table of the Gospel. That's the only place. It's a feast that's been carefully, specifically, appropriately designed for each and every one of us. Listen, God has met every need that we have through Christ. Every need through Christ. That's why at this wedding feast, He is so highly honored. Charles Spurgeon states, <clears throat> A feast is for fullness. The hungry, famished soul of a man is satisfied with the blessings of grace. The gospel fills the whole capacity of our manhood. Got that? The whole capacity of our manhood. There is no wanting left. 
There is not a faculty of our nature which is not made to feel its need supplied when the soul accepts the provisions of mercy. Let me add, those provisions of mercy, they are available for each and every one of us in great detail at the Feast of Grace that exists only at the table of the Gospel. That is not a there's not a faculty of our nature which is not made to feel its needs supplied when the soul accepts the provisions of mercy. Our whole manhood is satisfied with good things and our youth is renewed like the eagles. For God has satisfied the weary soul. And God has, have, God has replenished every sorrowful soul. And to crown it all, the gospel brings us into fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we have communion with the sacred Trinity. Listen, beloved. What is your need in Christ Jesus? We're getting ready to take, to partake of the Lord's Supper. We're getting ready to reflect on the sacrifice, the giving up of God, God meeting our needs through the sacrifice of the Son. We look over here and we see just a little loaf of bread. But guys, it symbolizes so much more than that. It symbolizes every single thing that we need in Christ Jesus. So as we prepare to come, I want you to come. Let's start in the back. I want you to come in just a second. I want you to come as family. Take your bread, take your wine, and make your way back to the seat, and we'll partake of this together. But I want you to do this very intentionally. I want you to do this thinking and asking and determining what is it that you really need in Christ Jesus? Because it is available to me, Matt, whatever you need. Let's continue this form of celebration. Brian, would you guys come up and just let's start back there, guys, just start filing around. Just come up as families. Okay, I'm going to read um, from 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to do this a little bit backwards. I'm going to start with verse 27 and then go back to verse 23. Um, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Just take... A little bit of time, I know some of you sitting there and have been sitting for a little bit, but just take some time to really examine yourself and maybe a time of confession before the Lord, maybe a time of restoring relationships with someone here. Um, I just, I remember one of the most encouraging times in taking the Lord's Supper, actually a couple times in fact, uh, just some teenagers, uh, friends of mine coming up and restoring broken relationships and those kind of things. So there's an opportunity for you for you to do that now.
Verse 23 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's put the bread together. Verse 25, in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I was reading that. You know, we do this as a a way of remembering what Christ has done for us on the cross, uh, remembering his sacrifice, but so much more than that, those last few words in verse 26, until he comes. We don't just have a dead Savior. We have a Savior that is going to come back for us. And that's something to rejoice in. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your sacrifice, for your death for us for undeserving people, Lord, for broken people. And Lord, we need you. We need that reminder. But Lord, let us not just hang on to that alone, to just rejoice in the fact that you are returning, that we don't have to um, live and serve this body of death and sin forever, that you will come to restore all things, Lord. Such a great joy to know that. We look forward to that day. Um, We look forward to worshiping and reigning with you forever. And Lord, we just thank you for just the reminder of the unity that we have in in Christ. And we look forward to just that too, Lord, just the coming together of, of your people as we wait for your return. And we pray that you do that here, Lord, that you would grow us as a body, not just numerically, but in spirit and in truth and in unity together, Lord, and that Jesus Christ would be exalted here and in this, uh, in this city around us and all throughout the world. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. Yeah. 